This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Logically and historically, society precedes the state. Uh, So despite what Thomas Hobbes might say, there must be some mechanisms besides Leviathan that coordinate competing desires and create order in order for a state to even come about. There has to be some level of organization, peace and cooperation. So my guest on the podcast today, his research explores, among many other things, what some of those mechanisms are. What are some of the ways that people can coordinate and create order and peace absent a central government? My guest today is Peter Leeson, the Duncan Black Professor of Economics and Law at George Mason University. Pete, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. You bet. Now, first, I have to just you know point out, point out. I, I'm such an admirer of your work, so I've got to find a way to you know show just how similar we are. We both come from Michigan. Uh, we both spent a, a bit of time working with the Mackinac Center for Public Policy many years ago. And we both have a great appreciation for cigars. So we're practically twins. <laughs> That's right. Um, so first, I want to talk a little bit about how you became an economist, um, what drove you to that, and what motivates you to be so productive as an economist. So let's, let's start. I'll, I'll break that down. Let's start with the why. Why did you become an economist and what what inspired you to pursue that career path? Um, well, I, I don't know that there was one single thing. I think like a lot of the ways that people fall into their passions, it's sort of by trial and error and chance. Uh, in my case, when I was pretty young, when I was maybe in ninth grade or so, 10th grade, um, I became interested, in, and don't ask me why, or I'm not exactly sure what prompted this, but I became interested in politics. And so I started reading just sort of whatever political magazines would be lying around the house. My parents, you know, had a subscription to, to Newsweek and, and periodicals of that nature. So I'd read the political sections. Um, and pretty soon I was interested in, in, you know, pursuing that further. So I went to the library and, and just started checking out some books on conservatism and on liberalism. And it was in my reading on conservatism that I came across uh, a a kind of defunct school of economic thought, although there are still elements that are that linger, uh, called supply side economics, which was, according to some people at least, the sort of you know guiding economic policy of the Reagan years, and um, that fascinated me. Now I don't, again, I'm not sure why that fascinated me, but it did. So I started reading everything that I could about it, and it led me to a book by an economist named Paul Craig Roberts wrote a book called The Supply Side Revolution, and I think it was in that book, although it may have been in something else that he had written, uh, that he referred to the Austrian School of Economics. Hmm. And so I you know, simply followed the footnote, so to speak, and I was very fortunate because in, in Midland, in the town that I'm from, that, that you mentioned in Michigan, uh, there's a, a university called Northwood University, which has a library that happens to have a lot of somewhat, at least at the time, somewhat obscure works on Austrian economics. And so, you know, I didn't know that how unusual that was at the time. I just thought, oh, you know, great, they have these books. So I started with um, this fellow named Ludwig von Mises, and I became absolutely enthralled, uh, absolutely captivated by it. I spent 
hours upon hours every day in the summers when my friends were, you know, wanting to go out and hang out and, you know, <laughs> do whatever, I wouldn't leave my room. I mean, my parents basically had to drag me out of there. Now, how um, old were you at this time? You said I that. was at this time probably 15, maybe. I think I was still reading like color by numbers books at 15. That's amazing. I mean, so, so what was it about Mises that so captivated you? You know, it, this is going to sound corny maybe, but I think it's true. It really made me feel like I understood the world for the first time. Hmm. I mean, I truly felt like my eyes were opened. All of these things around me, many of which I hadn't thought about, a few of which had sort of puzzled me before about the way the world works and, and a lot of these policy issues that were coming up in the political stuff I was reading, all of a sudden, you know, made perfect sense. And um, it was that that just, you know, drove me to read more and more in Austrian economics in particular, but also to just learn more about the economic way of thinking. So I started just picking up textbooks uh, of all things and and supplementing my Austrian reading with with sort of just regular, you know, principles and intermediate texts. And it was just, you know, I was in love. There, there is something so intoxicating about that feeling that, oh my gosh, I get it now. I understand the world. I, I, for me, it was uh, at a much later, I was probably 18, 19. And I read uh, That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Unseen by Bastiat. And I just had this like, epiphany, a lot of things that I sort of, you know, I, I thought, you know, price ceilings, price floors were not a good idea, but I didn't really quite understand it. And, and it was just this intoxicating moment where you just want to learn more, like reveal more mysteries to me. You know, I think, I think economics at its best really, really does that. Oh, um, absolutely. Well, let me ask you about your work. So you are a prolific writer, um, in terms of academic output. I mean, you're, it seems like you're always publishing a new paper and these are usually, these are not like, you know, short op-ed articles that, you know, somebody like me typically writes just little, little pieces kind of for a, a, a blog or a magazine or something, but you're writing in peer reviewed academic journals. Um, what drives you? And, and, and from my understanding of academia, there's some minimum level, especially before you're tenured of publication that's kind of expected for you to, to, to move up and to get, uh, tenured positions and things, but you seem to far exceed that. What motivates you to be so prolific in your publication of academic research? I, I love, I mean, first of all, thank you for saying that. Um, but the reason that I, I produce so much is just because I love doing it. <laughs> it. It's just like when I was, you know, a teenager reading about Austrian economics in my bedroom. Now I'm, you know, outside smoking a cigar and uh, banging away on the keyboard, trying to unravel something that, that puzzles me. Um, I'm one of the very, you know, fortunate people whose work, whose way of living happens to be pretty much pure consumption. I mean, if I weren't, don't, you know, I, I guess I shouldn't say this publicly, but anybody <laughs> who knows me knows it already. If, if I didn't get paid anything to do what I'm doing, I would still be doing it. I, I would have less time to devote, devote to it, unfortunately, but, uh, I would still be spending my, my evening hours at a minimum uh, doing it. And I, you know, I just love it. I'm, I think I'm a curious person. And because, you know, rightly or wrongly, although I, I of course think rightly, because I, I feel like I have this incredible tool um, that allows me to interrogate the world and make sense of the otherwise senseless, I, you know, feel absolutely compelled to do that. And so I spend a great deal of time, you know, doing it. 
you know, it's interesting what you said, like, you know, don't tell anyone that I would do this for free. You know, it's like sort of the old, old joke that if they knew I'd do it for free, they wouldn't pay me. But, but actually I think there's sometimes, and not only in academia and some other careers as well, there are people that love what they do so much and they do it well and they would do it no matter what. The reason they get paid isn't because nobody's figured that out. It's because you're going to be producing your stuff regardless. People want to pay you because they want to compete to be the one who gets to take credit for it, right? So like if you're a highly productive academic, universities want to compete for you. They want to pay you to do that, even if you do it for free, because they want to bid you away from other places who would get their university name in your byline, in your in your bio. So it's uh, it's not just an information problem in the market, the reason that you're getting paid. That's well, I guess I think that's right. And I, I you know, especially in academia, in academia, you mentioned tenure before. There's definitely selection there, right? I mean, people who get their PhDs and end up wanting to become scholars in a particular field are typically very passionate about it. And that works well and, in fact, is necessary for the system to function. Because once you have tenure, there are the standards, in a sense, change. And so you need people who are very self-motivated. So that selection works works in favor of the system's operation. Hmm. Um, how many How many papers have you published? Do you have a number? I don't. I don't know. Over over 100. I know that. Um, wow. But, but I don't. I don't know how many. Exactly. Uh, I I do appreciate. I've noticed in a number of your papers, you you like to use uh, puns and wordplay in your titles, uh, which is which is great. I I love cheesy. Um, my kids hate it, but I love making puns and cheesy jokes. And I'm like, well, look, see, this respected professor even does it in his published work. You can't hate <laughs> on me for that. Um, is there something in particular? So, so besides just doing it because you love it, is there something that you're hoping to achieve with all the work that the, the papers that you're publishing and sort of your body of work? There is, there, there's, there's, you know, lots of things. Um, you know, first, as I say, to be, you know, completely frank, I write for myself. Um, having said that, there are obviously ideas in doing so that I want to communicate to other people. And those ideas kind of fall into a handful of closely related themes. The first is the omnipresence of rational action, hmm. um, which is, you know, traditionally was sort of a conventional starting point for economics. But nowadays, um, when, when behavioral economics in particular is in becoming increasingly popular, that's not always an obvious starting point. So I'm interested very much in pushing the idea of of understanding human behavior and in institutions through the concept of rational behavior, which goes back to my Austrian roots. That's the what Mises called, you know, the praxeological method. Yep. Um, so rational behavior is the first stage, the, the, the first sort of level. The second level is is rational behavior that typically tends to promote social cooperation. So welfare enhancing rational behavior. And the third stage is rational behavior that promotes social cooperation and often does so without needing to rely on government. Um, and so it's those, it's it, at one of those layers that pretty much all of my work falls into. And those are the three sort of themes that, that, you know, tie it together and that I'm interested in, in promoting the ideas of. Yeah. And I, I love the, um, that was a really great description and, and I'm glad cause it kind of confirms sort of my, my hunches, my take on your work. What, what I what I love about it, that the more you know that I've read your papers and things, it all seems a little bit weird at first, right? So you might write a paper about um, the 
efficiency of, you know, insect trials or wife swapping or, you know, trial by combat or things that are that just seem crazy. But the what's really going on there is, is as you said, first, that the seemingly irrational um, is not exempt from a sort of rational choice explanation. And I think that's really important. It's too easy to let ourselves off the hook uh, in the social sciences or just in, in the world more generally by saying, oh, well, that person's behavior can't be explained. It's just crazy. And that doesn't offer any enlightenment. If we force ourselves to say there must be, let's assume they're rational and assuming they're rational, how do we find some way to explain this behavior? And, and your work does that very well. And, and, the, and this sort of subversive element that I alluded to in the teaser when I started this episode is that I kind of read all your work as saying Hobbes was wrong <laughs> because I think almost all the social sciences have this undergirding, this, this assumption, the default position is not neutral. The default position is absent a monopoly on force. Humans would all be like Lord of the flies, just at each other's throats. It would be, you know, life would be nasty, brutish, and, sh and short, as Hobbes said. And I'm sure other people besides Hobbes and before Hobbes, but that's the one that comes to my mind. And I think your work is like all these little snapshots in time revealing how absent a central coercive body, um, order can emerge. And it doesn't say that this order is necessarily morally good or bad. Um, it's just showing that it can emerge even in unlikely circumstances. And I think that is a really powerful way to chip away at that Hobbesian assumption in the social sciences. Would that be a fair assessment of like part of what you're attempting to do? I, we, we must be twins. That's you're in my head. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's a, a better assessment or better way of characterizing it than I can put it. In fact, well, um, yep. yeah, well, go ahead. Well, no, I, I don't really have much to add, to add to the, to the way that you described it. I, <laughs> So that, you know, that that shows that it wasn't a very good question. It was just me making a statement. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, so let me ask you this. So in your work, so much of it is is really history. So you know, you're you're doing historical work in in, a, in many ways. So you're, I guess, you're kind of taking existing historical work, documentation of various epochs in history, um, and you are. You, and analyzing it through the lens uh, of an economist, through a rational choice lens. So, I mean, where where is that line between history and economics? What's the difference? Is what you're doing history or is it economics? Well, I think it's it's economics rather than history. I mean, the way that I think about it, so Mises actually has this distinction between what he calls theory and history. And theory for him is what most economists would consider, you know, what's called price theory or the, the sort of pure logic of choice. Um, it's those, it's the abstractions of microeconomics that we then use as a lens for interpreting and understanding history, which is the empirical reality that we're confronted with in a particular circumstance. So applied economics, in my view, is simply taking that lens and bringing it to bear on a historical episode, which doesn't have to mean a historical episode long ago. It could equally mean, you know, contemporary economic data, which is still history in a sense that it's already, it's, it's data referring to, to activities and behaviors that have already taken place. Um, so that's how I sort of see it. It's, it's, applied, it's applied theory, um, with, which in my own case, with the hope of, I think every or many applied economists want to think this at least, and I'm not exempt, with the hope of maybe on the margin advancing theory, not in a formal sense, certainly in my case, but pushing the idea in a slightly different direction to maybe, to maybe give a new take on it. Um, yeah. So go ahead. 
I was just going to say, you know, that that's sort of how I see the, the the theory history distinction. But the what history, and I'm using that in the in the conventional sense right now. So sort of history books, books about historical episodes, which as you point point out, I rely on heavily in my work. Um, what they're very good, what they're indispensable for, is providing facts. You know, telling us in a way what happened. Now, of course, there are no such thing as brute facts and so on. Um, but that's sort of the point. You know, what economics is there to do from my perspective and what my purpose is as a researcher is to use the economics to sort of make sense of those facts and to identify the relevant ones. And that's the comparative advantage of, of economics, of the, of the theory side, the pure logic of choice. It's the interpretation that economists can bring, I think, is uniquely powerful in illuminating the history of, of, of human behavior, you know, the facts that are before us. History books oftentimes provide some semblance of articulated what we might call theory or explanation for those facts, but from my admittedly biased economic perspective, ordinarily that, that interpretation is very much wanting. It, it, it is not sensible from the perspective of rational choice theory, and the pattern of facts can be better explained by applying that theory. So, you know, I guess you could you could sort of see also what I'm doing is, is arbitraging economic theory and and history. Yeah, it's interesting in debates or discussions about the role of, you know, um, empirical data versus theory. I think a lot of people kind of have it backwards. I, I, I feel like your work says, let's look at puzzling findings, empirical findings that that seem puzzling to us, and we can explain them through economic theory. And I think often people are doing the opposite. They're searching for empirical data that will explain a puzzling theoretical finding or proposition, um, which seems entirely backwards, right? Like, okay, here's this theory. Now we got to go out and find all the data to sort of prove it right. And, and maybe that's not always backwards, but I think often saying, here's this data, here's this thing in history. I, I saw one of your most recent papers about, um, you know, this, this mysterious phenomena that the English had this longbow that helped them conquer everybody. Why didn't all these other countries adopt it? It's an empirical fact, but it's mysterious. The fact doesn't seem to make sense. And so let's apply some, some theory in this case, sort of a, an analysis of the institutions at play and why this might not happen. Um, and I think that's a really great marriage of, of the two. Um, okay. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute. Sure. So a lot of your work, especially the more sort of crazy sounding stuff about, you know, how, um, what's the one that I'm thinking of the, um, uh, trial by trial by ordeals, you know, how yeah. this, you know, dipping your hand into a boiling cauldron. And if you don't get burned, you're innocent, whatever this, this seemingly absurd practice, your work is kind of saying, well, look, if we look at the constraints people faced, the beliefs they had, the institutional setting, this is actually, um, not only rational, but, a, but a somewhat efficient way to determine guilt or innocence compared to the alternatives available all well and good. But there's a point at which you start to feel like, okay, is this Leeson guy just saying everything is efficient, right? Like at what point does it become everything around us is efficient? There's no room for innovation or change because everything that is has some sort of rational explanation. Well, I don't think that that's a variance on that question are, are common points that are made to me or, or questions that are asked of me. And I think that it's certainly, it is not... 
saying that everything is efficient. So if somebody asked me, do you think everything is efficient? I would say yes. Now, to a lot of, even to most economists, uh, that doesn't seem very sensible, but I think it's actually just the sort of, as a pure matter of, of theory, the logical implication of what maximizing behavior tells us, right? So given all the constraints that an actor faces, they're doing the best that they can. That's all that it, that's all that it says. That doesn't mean that we can't imagine a world that has different constraints, for example, that would be superior from some perspective, right? So a world, for instance, we wouldn't right now say that um, there's inefficiency in the world because uh, given the, you know, the market price for automobiles, let's say, um, because there isn't 10 times more, you know, steel available than, than there currently is. Nobody would, no economist at least would, would make that argument. We would say, no, you know, we, we take the amount of the natural resource, you know, as given, and given that supply, this price is in fact the right price, so to speak. Um, I think that that's a simple recognition of, of constrained optimization. I think that that same idea can be brought to bear on everything if we simply apply it consistently and persistently. The difficulty is that people don't like the implications. So it doesn't seem right to people, for example, to say, you know, Stalinist Russia, that was efficient. Uh, and I get that, right? <laughs> but the point is that given all of the costs, which include the, you know, non-tangible costs, if you want to think about it that way, what economists often call transaction costs, that people confronted, it must be that at a given moment in time, people were optimizing. The alternative would be to suggest that people were not behaving rationally. To me, that perspective makes perfect sense and does not preclude the possibility of change or improvement. The reason being that constraints can change. So it's that to me, things become a little bit tricky in the sense that what we take at one point for an analysis as a constraint, we may in another analysis or at another point want to think about as endogenous to the choices of individuals. Hmm. And it's that gap that basically permits for everything being efficient at a, at a given moment in time and for change that can lead to improvements and disimprovements. So in terms I don't know, of, how, I don't know if that made sense, but that's how I sort of reconcile it in my head. No, no, that absolutely made sense. So, I mean, in terms of, in terms of changing those constraints, so you gave the, the example of automobiles, you know, no one would say that the, um, you know, the current market for automobiles is inefficient because, you know, if we had 10 times more steel, things would look different. Therefore, given this constraints today, things are inefficient. No one would say that, but, but let's say those constraints change. So in the case of, of something like the automobile, let's say that, you, you know, mining, um, mining and, and, you know, smelting or whatever steelworks activities go on. Let's say that there's a massive, uh, new technology or discovery of new resources that result in, um, 10 times more steel. Now the constraint has changed and there's sort of a, a new efficient, a new equilibrium will be discovered. But, but what about when those constraints are mental, when those constraints are belief? So a lot of your work talks about this, given the religious beliefs of a certain group of people, because they had those beliefs, like in order for the, the, the trial by ordeals, for example, to be effective, the majority of the people had to believe that God actually would protect people who were innocent and otherwise. And, and that's not actually what was going on in the trials. The, the, the priests were sort of rigging the game because they kind of knew 
that if you were willing to dip your hand in the boiling thing, you probably weren't um, guilty. And so they would kind of rig the game so that you wouldn't get burned. But everybody else had to believe that. So the belief was the constraint. And and this would sort of lead to uh, the idea that in order for society to change, it requires a change in beliefs in some ultimate sense. Like, like the, the institutions that exist are there because of belief. So does that move us out of the realm of economic analysis? Deirdre McCloskey kind of, kind of would lean in this way. And her, her book, uh, I can't remember which one it is. The bourgeois virtues is, is subtitled why economics can't explain the modern world, which is maybe a slightly sensational subtitle. But, but when we recognize that beliefs form this kind of ultimate constraint in some ways, does that now move us out of the realm of economic analysis and trying to explain changes in society or the economy? Well, I, I would certainly say no, um, and I would certainly say that beliefs are also amenable to economic reasoning. Um, you mentioned my paper on, on vermin trials before, which in Renaissance Europe, uh, insects and rodents were prosecuted for criminal trespass and, and theft and so on. And uh, one that, of the that'd things be like that putting actually, politicians on trial. It sounds like. <laughs> not, not too dissimilar. Sorry. Indeed, it would. Um, and um, the I, part of what that paper is doing is actually looking at beliefs, not simply as constraints. So there's there's certainly value. This is what getting back to what I was mentioning before. For for the purposes of of some analyses, what we want to do is we want to think about existing beliefs as constraints. Because in the short run, for example, they are unlikely to change. They're relatively fixed. On the other hand, what economic imperialism would suggest, which I'm all in favor of, is that at some level, those beliefs themselves must be the products of economizing behavior. Um, and what the Vermin Trials paper in part is trying to do is to look at how it is that the beliefs that, how it is in fact that the Catholic Church used an existing set of bizarre beliefs about the prosecution of, of insects and rodents to in fact influence uh, citizens' beliefs about the power of the church to spiritually sanction them if they didn't pay their tithes. So the story of that paper in very short is that in the period in which these trials were being operated, heretics were eroding citizens' beliefs in the Catholic church's ability to to basically call on God to punish people who evaded their tithes. And that was the only form of enforcing tithe compliance, which is you know, exactly analogous more or less to uh, the tax compliance uh, that the church had. So they faced this problem of eroding re revenues in the face of, of heretical influence. So what they needed to do was to somehow bolster citizens' belief in that power. And what the paper analyzes is how they used this, these criminal trials of insects and rodents to actually influence the belief of people. Um, and it sort of uses a, a Bayesian analysis to do that. But the point is that that is an, an example of, of how we can simultaneously, at least partially endogenize some of the beliefs. We can think about them as the products of people's choices. So the you know superstitions and, and other beliefs that individuals hold um, are at least partly determined by other people's investments in them having those beliefs. And that's where economics can can play a role. Yeah, what I find so fascinating is, you know, without without resorting to claims about kind of, you know, the ultimate origin of let's say people's beliefs or or in more economic terms their preferences, uh, their demand curves for various goods, 
without resorting to claims about where they originate or without resorting to moral claims or whether or not those desires, those preferences are good or bad, economic analysis is so indispensable in understanding the way they function. And in your example, the Soviet Union, I thought was really interesting where, look, in in a way, this is this is efficient and efficient is not to be confused with good or the best of all possible worlds, but given the information and the beliefs. And, and that's where every individual has some desire to get better information, but they don't have an unlimited desire, right? Everything has trade-offs. So when the cost of obtaining new information or just discovering more things about the world is really high, you'll demand less of it. And this is exactly why you, this would be evidenced by the, the use of propaganda, banning of, you know, information, books, radio networks from outside of the Soviet Union or North Korea. This is why people try to drop in information or smuggle in Milton Friedman books to, to lower the cost of obtaining better information, because once you have that information, now your beliefs might shift and that regime might no longer be able to sustain itself once people doubt that it is truly the best possible world that they could live in, or, or at least one that they're willing to, to tolerate. And it's such a, that's such a powerful tool that I think gets thrown out too easily when we, we get turned off by words like efficiency, because we equate it with good, like morally good. Um, and I think that's a really important thing to, you know, a, a very important, um, difference to make there. Okay. I want to ask you about a specific episode in history, which I think is probably the greatest mystery in all of history, which in many ways, is what spawned the modern discipline of economics. Um, if you if you look at Adam Smith trying to understand the wealth of nations, how some nations became so wealthy, um, you look at you know the the industrial revolution, this massive explosion in human wealth um, in such a short period of time after thousands of years of of more or less you know subsistence living or within a certain range of that. In your opinion, I mean what. Because there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about there's a lot of efforts to explain this. Like Jared Diamond would say, oh well, it's kind of just uh, where people happen to live geographically and the resources they had access to. Some people will say that it's about um, skills people learned or capital accumulation, whether that's human capital or physical capital. Um, McCloskey, who I mentioned earlier, points to this sort of change in rhetoric, which reflects a change in belief. People started to think that being a merchant, a tradesman was, was noble instead of ignoble. And therefore that sort of loosened the institutional constraints on productive activity in your, do you have like a, an opinion, a thought on sort of the causes of that? Or how do you, how do you understand that sort of mystery? My my understanding is of what I consider to be a very traditional one, at least in the in the classical liberal tradition, which is that it comes down to institutions of private property rights. So this is not to deny the potential importance of other factors, including those that you mentioned, um, but it's simply to say that the best evidence that we have, in my view, and the most strongly theoretically supported argument is for the primacy of private property rights which when they exist, obviously incentivize uh, productive you know, economic activity. And when they don't, incentivize the opposite. And so uh, you know, we don't have any examples of wealthy nations that do not have reasonably well-respected private property rights. Uh, and we don't have any examples of poor nations that do have those, those institutions. So that's, a, that's an, an old, a very old argument, but it's one that, that re, in fact, it goes back, of course, to Adam Smith, uh, but it's one that 
resurfaced in, you know, maybe oh, about 15, 20 years ago in the development economics literature, uh, academic literature, in, in particular through the work of two sets of, of authors. Uh, one, Darren Asimoglu, Simon uh, Johnson, and James Robinson, who wrote about what they called the colonial origins of comparative development, who more or less empirically tested Smith's proposition that institutions of private property rights are the foremost driver of development and found it to be true. And a, uh, another set of papers by uh, Andre Schleifer and some co-authors, which emphasized the legal origins of, of countries, uh, pointing out that countries that had common law legal origins, you know, English heritage, where private property rights had been long established and protected uh, and had those institutions transplanted to them through colonization did very well. And those that had civil law institutions of various sorts, which did a not so good of a job relatively of protecting private property rights, uh, developed less. So those two streams of, of literature in, in contemporary development economics are really, in my view, hearkening back to Smith's insight in 1776, uh, which is the way that, that I've understood it all along. So what would you say, let's say I live in a country with very poorly developed um, property rights and sort of both formal and informal uh, norms and, and institutions around property rights. If I said, Pete, what is the, the most effective thing I can do to improve the you know, respect for property rights or, or a, a functioning sort of set of institutions to protect those? What would, wouldn't it begin at the level of belief or what would you recommend? You know, I mean, I always feel like some of these, even the, the economists who recognize that, they always have these ideas that you can sort of like parachute in and be like, here, here's a constitution, use this and everything will be fine. But, but, but I think sort of the beliefs at play there uh, might not even make that possible. Where would you go? Where would you start in trying to improve a place with poor institutions um, regarding property? Well, that's a really, a really, really hard problem. So the, if, if you're starting with- You're supposed to be able to solve all the world's problems as an economist. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you what I think about it, but I don't know how helpful this is, but I think it's, I think it's right. So for what that's worth, if you're starting with, with poor formal and informal formal institutions, you're in very bad shape. <laughs> um, and that certainly is, is the case in, in, in some places. The issue is that Knowing the recipe for economic development, which, as I said, I'm quite confident that we do know, we've known it for hundreds of years, uh, going back to Smith, is not the same thing as knowing how to give that, how to implement that recipe in a place that, that uh, isn't currently following it. And, you know, it's there where development policy comes into play. Now, as you referred to, some Policymakers and economists are very optimistic and confident in our ability to transplant institutions. I am a much less so. Um, you know, you mentioned the idea of beliefs and informal institutions. You know, sort of on the ground indigenous uh, indigenous beliefs and practices that may conflict with the formal institutions of private property rights and so on that are necessary for for development. That's my view as well. I, I don't think, you know, I sort of think of informal institutions as the as the glue that potentially provides or does not provide stickiness, so to speak, to uh, to formal institutions when they're when they're when they uh, are attempted to be transplanted. Hmm. So what that means is is sort of pessimistic, I suppose, in a sense, which is why a lot of people don't like it. But what it suggests is that, you know, there are many ways to live. 
uh, but there is more or less one way to live prosperously, which is through the institution of, of well-protected property rights. However, conditional on you not having that, the only way out of it is needs to be sort of homegrown. The informal institutions or whatever that underlying informal stuff is that uh, that is problematic at the start needs to somehow develop in a way that is not at odds with the formal institutions. Now, what that means, and that's very vague, right? needs to develop. Who knows what that means? I don't think that we have a very good sense. We know, again, the direction that things need to go, and we know what the outcomes in broad strokes need to look like. The end result, again, needs to be a system of well-protected property rights. But how you get from A to B uh, is a great mystery. And it, it may not be, in, in, in my view, uh, in fact, this is the case, that there is one answer or even an answer that we can readily identify. Hmm. Uh, that, re that requires knowledge about local conditions and how spontaneous orders function um, and, and might develop that, that nobody has access to, information that nobody has access to. So it's, it tells us the solution needs to be indigenous. Uh, it tells us that we, we know what the outcome needs to look like, but other than that, it doesn't tell us how to, which is the, really what the meat of the question is, how do we get from A to B? Well, you know, I always, I've always felt like in these discussions about, you know, I guess it would be broadly called development economics. How, how can the countries that are, you know, behind in development or less developed, how can they become, you know, better? And okay, it's these institutions. How can the institutions improve? There's this giant elephant in the room I feel like nobody talks about it. everybody's so fixated on given this specific geographical plot of land that these people are in with all these screwed up institutions, how can they make those screwed up institutions better? And that seems like such a strange conversation. If you imagine talking about a business here in the United States with a relatively free, free economy, someone saying, yeah, they uh, beat employees, people steal our stuff from the fridge in the lunchroom, um, it's horrible, or a church or a golf club, whatever. Our in, initial immediate response would be, "We'll leave and go somewhere else." Right. Um, and there's this competitive pressure that can't last very long. But but the elephant in the room is immigration restrictions and immigration discussions. When you talk about development, like nobody from the outside can probably really know the best way to help someone in a really poor country that speaks a totally different language and whatever else make their country have better informal or formal institutions. We might have some ideas and maybe we can share some information. But but the the best thing that is in our control, it's like here we are in these walled off cities looking at people suffering and being like, man, it's too bad they're suffering. And, they're, you know, they, they can't even they're banging on the door and we won't let them in. And so I think that's a that's a huge elephant in the room that like, look, we might not be able to figure out how to solve, how to make the desert bloom. But we certainly can let people flee from the desert and that competi comp competitive pressure alone not only lets them flee somewhere else, but puts pressure on the bad places to get better. You know, that, that always just seems so strange that that's rarely discussed. Oh, I mean, you're 100% right. And that's that's absolutely correct. I mean, one solution to the plight of underdeveloped countries is to let the people in them move to the developed countries. Right. And there's there's no doubt about it. That would be bar none, the best and the global anti-poverty program that could uh, that we could ever imagine. It could be done immediately. The problem, of course, is that people don't want to pay the perceived price of, uh, of, of adopting that solution, which speaks in my in my mind to the the sort of, you know, uh, lack of genuineness of, of at least some individuals claims to want to truly help 
people in the developing world, which I think is actually borne out if you if you look at, for example, the amount of uh, private giving, uh, which is non-trivial, by the way. It's actually much larger than the amount of of public giving to developing countries from from countries such as the United States, for instance. But it's still trivial as a percentage of most Americans' income, which tells you a little bit about how much people actually value improving the plight of the poor. Um, one thing that I want to add to that is that in addition to immigration, the other thing that we can do, sort of, which is a, a distant second best, but is is somewhat related, is to open trade, right? So there yeah. are, there's some work going all the way back to, to P.T. Bauer, uh, and I'm sure others before him, that suggests that opening trade with people in poor countries, of course, you know, does the obvious of generating thicker markets and, and gives access to people to people in those countries to new products that they wouldn't otherwise have access to and gives them new economic opportunities, but also that it may, getting back to this question of beliefs, expose people in foreign countries to other ideas. Yeah. Now that's a sort of you know vague and fuzzy notion again, but there seems like seems like there might be something to it. Uh, and so that's a a sort of you know companion policy to the to the uh, more extreme open the borders. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see someone trapped in a bad situation and it just seems really absurd to say, boy, I feel really bad for them. I better stop talking to them and sharing goods with them. And, you know, like let let goods, ideas, information and people flow freely. And I think a lot of these problems um, immediately start to get better. Now, let me ask you, um, in terms of your approach to economics, would you consider yourself part of any particular school of economics? I know you're heavily influenced by the Austrian school. Would you call yourself an Austrian or would you say like Milton Friedman, there's only two kinds of economics, good and bad? What, how, how would you characterize your approach and, and, and a school that you might consider yourself part of? Well, I'm not, I'm not huge on labels and I, I do like Friedman's dictum to which you referred. Um, having said that, there, you know, there are really two schools of thought that have strongly very strongly influenced my thinking that overwhelm it. And that's, you know, the Austrian school in particular, the work of Mises and the Chicago school in particular, the work of Gary Becker and George Stigler. Um, and, you know, there are, there's the Virginia school as well, which in a sense, I, you know, I, I consider sort of a, a, an admixture of those two schools. Which is the Virginia school is like public choice theory, more or less. Is that fair? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And in, you know, for me, Tulloch is the sort of, guiding light, the intellectual hero that, you know, that, that, that I look up to in particular within, within that school. Um, but those are the three, you know, so it's two, there's a third that, that's, a, that's a mix in there, but I don't get, I don't get hung up on labels. Um, and I don't think other people should either. Do you approach economics? So there's a lot of discussion about the use of statistics, um, in economics. I know several, um, you know, Hayek mentioned, talked about uh, scientism, this sort of, this sort of physics envy among the social sciences. Can we be more mathematical, quantitative? Do you find that in your discipline, um, do you think that people are sort of misusing uh, the tools available or attempting to, to emulate the physical sciences too much? Or, or, or what would you say um, in terms of the state of the discipline of economics as a whole? Well, I wouldn't, you know, I, I'm not one to. I, my work is commonly criticized um, for a number of reasons, but but one of them is that it is sort of oddball within the profession. And I therefore, you know, a, 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 my view is sort of let a thousand flowers bloom. And I don't want to, you know, criticize the way that other people do their work. I think that there's a large number 
of valuable ways in which we can pursue uh, you know, the project of economic imperialism, and we ought to pursue those ways. We shouldn't be single-minded about what constitutes you know, the one right approach. Now, there are bounds on that, of course. In order for it to constitute an economic enterprise, in my mind, it needs to basically start with that core axiom, that postulate of rational behavior, or what Mises called purposive behavior. Um, so, but outside of that, the sort of ways in which we so that would that would make like maybe half of behavioral economists' work be questionable. <laughs> well, again, I don't want I don't want to uh, I don't want to, to step on toes and, and <laughs> I don't know I don't know a lot about it, but just... <laughs> I, you know I certainly to to me um, much of behavioral economics is is you know not the way that I that I see as the most productive way for doing things. But having said that, again. I would, wouldn't want to cut off the possibility. I wouldn't want to preclude other forms of research from, from being conducted in the same way that I wouldn't want my admittedly nowadays rather idiosyncratic approach to be precluded. I, I love so, that. Uh, oh, go ahead. No, I, I you know, that, that's sort of, that's sort of my, I certainly have my own strong preferences and views about what is best, but I don't, would never conclude from that, that therefore we ought to have some kind of litmus test. And my one complaint um, to the extent that I that I have one, when in fact I have many, but <laughs> of, you know the, the economic modern economics profession is that I think a lot of um, economists, you know, wittingly or unwittingly, have a, a a quite narrow view about what constitutes economic science. Hmm. And I agree that that you know, getting back to the first part of your question, that that view I think has been characterized well by Hayek and some others. Um, and I think that there are, you know, there are benefits and costs to everything and there, there are, there are benefits to, to that way of thinking. But what I don't think uh, is useful is to, is to use it again as a way to exclude alternative forms of research. So I love that approach of, I don't know, a, a, a mantra that I, I really love, which I think originated with Michelangelo. I'm not sure is criticized by creating. And I think that notion that look, there are ways that I think economics can be done really productively or ways that I find the most enlightening. And there may be ways that I don't like that much, but rather than to spend my time as policemen of the discipline, um, I will just do good work. I'll just say, Hey, look, I think this is a really productive way to pursue economics and to utilize economics uh, to understand the world and to just keep producing things in that way and if the work is good, more people will be attracted to it rather than spending your time going around trying to slap down everybody who's doing it in a way that you think is subpar. Um, and that's and that's a really challenging thing in any intellectual line of work, any intellectual field. There's this strong draw to sort of preserve the sanctity of the discipline. You know, oh, no, that's not philosophy. That's not history. That's not economics. Let me make sure that nobody's doing it wrong. And I think just rising above that whole thing and producing good work is – the most powerful and, and certainly um, on like a personal happiness <laughs> basis, the most fun way to go about it. And you seem to to embody that very well. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That's what I try to do. Um, so do you have like any of the work that you've done? Has there been anything that's really surprised you? Anything that's that's made you say, wow, I did not expect that when you dug into some of these historical epochs or anything, what, what's sort of the most surprising or, or fun thing that, that you've discovered? Oh, Lord. I mean, 
virtually all of it. I mean, <laughs> this is, you know, a large part of the way that, that I, um, I, that I choose topics, if you want to think about it that way, is, is just, as I said I, before, I'm a curious person. I do a lot of reading and history and so on. And whenever something, you know, stands out to me, puzzles me, I wonder what the hell is going on here? Why would, why would people do this? That inspires me to write a paper. So, uh, and at the beginning, I have absolutely no idea. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I find it mystifying. I find it strange. I have absolutely no sense of why they're doing it. And that's the fun part which often takes years on a, on a single project to try and try and come to grips with it um, via, via a rational choice approach and, and see what can be done there. So in a sense, you know, especially the work on, on superstition and unusual social practices, uh, all of it astonished me pretty much from start to end. And, and one of the great things about it was, you know, doing that kind doing work of that sort, is great for the soul because there's all these eureka moments. Many of them, it turns out, are false alarms. You know, you get sidetracked for six months on, on the idea of, you know, this is what's going on. And then as you're looking at the evidence, you're realizing that, in fact, it doesn't square. And so that can't be right. Um, but especially when you finally latch on to one that, that seems right, it's just a tremendous joy. I, I get, you know, the, the most immense satisfaction from that. And... Um, you know, that's I want to in writing the papers convey that 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 discovery, that eureka moment, and that sense of satisfaction to others. So that's partly what what I'm trying to do there. <laughs> your uh, your book on pirates, um, the Invisible Hook, the the hidden uh, the hidden order of of pirates, um, great book, great fun. I, I thought of it not that long ago. I was watching. Uh, I only watched maybe the first four or five episodes of this show, Black Sails, and you know, the show is, is uh, sensational in many ways, but there was a lot of elements of it that I was so excited to see because one of my pet peeves is like in the movies, especially villains, pe- people are so often portrayed as essentially irrational, like acting against their own, what, what we're led to believe is their self-interest and sort of these absurd behaviors or portrayals of history that just, they just, they can't understand a certain practice. So they just portray it as like pure evil and barbaric through and through with like no social utility. And that show didn't really do it that way. So I was, I was sort of, I don't know if this is true or not, but I was just imagining these Hollywood writers, you know, digging into the, the Pete Leeson archives and (laughs) gaining, gaining insight to make better movies. I hope that's a world that we, uh, we start to move towards. (laughs) Me too. You know, it's funny with black sales. I was really excited about it and I watched most of the first season and I was, especially the first few episodes, they, they quite explicitly introduce, you know, features of pirate governance and make them, you know, very much economic actors. It was really, I, I really liked that as well. But yeah, something that, about the series, I, I something about it didn't, it had, everything was there. I thought it was going to be my favorite show that ever, you know, that ever existed. <laughs> but ultimately I lost my taste for it. I don't know what happened. No, I did too. I, I did too. I, I don't know why I never picked it back up. Um, maybe there's, there's some mystery in there I'll have to discover. So do you have, um, do you have any new papers in the works? Uh, what, what do you, what do you sort of see on the horizon as areas that you want to uh, explore? There's a couple of, yeah, I have, I have several papers in the works. Um, a couple, one of them is on witch trials. So the great age of European witch trials, which lasted, you know, from about 1550 to about 1700, but spans the whole period from, you know, 1300 to 1850. Um, and the paper is, is trying to understand and explain the, the temporal and geographic pattern of, of witch trials and what, 
what role they uh, they may have played. Uh, I'm working on that with a with a graduate student named Jake Russ, and he's he's been doing terrific work on it, and we're actually getting pretty close to a draft. So that one, if you're interested, will be uh, hopefully pretty soon available on my on my website. Um, another paper I'm writing also with a graduate student named Paula Suarez is on the institution of prepubescent female marriage in the developing world. So in impoverished countries, there are tens of millions of girls who get married before reaching puberty, uh, which is a rather poses a number of puzzles. You know, yeah. one, why, why are parents willing to marry off their 10-year-old girls to adult men? Uh, incidentally, these are not these are not child marriages in the sense of young boys and girls, but it's a it's a little girl and an adult man. And then second, why you know why are adult at least some adult men in these countries willing to take prepubescent girls as brides? Um, and so we are that paper will also have a theoretical component explaining the 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 practice or what we think is the explanation, and then some some evidence to try and explore that theory. Uh, and we're also getting pretty close to, to finishing up a draft on that one. So, so that may be available pretty soon too. Um, and on the sort of longer horizon, or maybe not longer actually, just on, uh, more broadly, I'm working on a book, uh, a new book that's going to ex take a lot of these different strange and unusual and often shocking social institutions uh, that uses economics to to understand them and explore them. And it's going to be a popular book, uh, you know, aimed at, at people who are interested in the pop economics genre, but also because of a particular way that I'm doing it, which I don't want to reveal too much about quite yet, but I think will ultimately appeal to many, many people who don't care or are not interested in economics at all, have never been traditional readers of, of the pop economics genre, uh, but just like you know, entertaining reading. That's really exciting to hear because I, I was going to ask you um, if there's a if you have an aversion to the more popular sort of layman audience um, writing because you do so much academic writing. And the, the Invisible Hook is definitely more of a popular book. Anarchy Unbound is somewhat, but a little bit more heady. So I was going to ask you if there was a reason if you sort of didn't like that style of writing, or if it's just a matter of um, taking the time to to compile some of your work in that format. And it sounds maybe like the latter. Yeah, it, it's it's the latter, and and actually I have pretty much a, a completed draft of the book, but there's a lot more. You know, I'm finding out since I've never I've never published uh, with a commercial press before. There's more to that enterprise, at least than there was with my with my previous academic books. Uh, some things that I'm learning, some some stuff that doesn't have anything to do with you know the research or the argument that needs to be done. That I that um, you know I'm trying to trying to get on top of and and make sure. I get done in a reasonable amount of time so that we can, you know, hopefully find a publisher for the book. If you had one book recommendation to someone uh, interested in, maybe they know a little bit about basic economics, but they want to go deeper, what would you, what book would you recommend? Oh, that's a hard question. I, I'll tell you this much. My favorite book in economics all time, without question, I reread it every year, have since I was 15, is Mises' is Human Action. I, so, I agree. That is my absolute one of my favorite books in any genre. Um, I find it just, uh, some people don't like Mises's writing. I think his writing is amazing. I think he's clear, concise. Uh, I got to agree with you there. But I think that's kind of a hard recommendation. You know, if somebody has read Economics in One Lesson by Hazlitt, moving directly from that to human action for many people, depending upon their level of interest anyway, might be a little bit much. So 
that's kind of a, a big transition. Maybe a baby step in that direction would be Mises's book, Liberalism in the Classical Tradition, um, kind of a stepping stone to try. Uh, I would definitely recommend anybody who's interested in what we've been talking about today to check out um, Pete's. Uh, I know he has several books, but the two that I think are probably the most relevant to this and the most accessible, um, The Invisible Hook, which is about order among thieves, uh, the, the the invisible order of um, or the hidden order of of pirates and uh, piracy and Anarchy Unbound, which is a phenomenal book that includes several of uh, Pete's papers in the introduction alone, um, I think is just, is worth the price of the book because it, it does such a good job of laying out kind of your whole research program and what it's all about. Uh, Pete, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You can find Pete at peterleeson.com. I appreciate you coming by and talking with me. Thanks so much for having me, Isaac. 